All right. Hey, welcome, everybody. Glad that you guys are here. Glad you guys all got here safely and braved the, what is it, like 13 degrees out there now? Goodness. Yesterday, I was walking around in short sleeves outside, and today it's 13 degrees, but that's what Colorado is. And like Pastor Gabe said, the, the fires that are going on, I'm hearing this is already doing great things for that. So we will just thank the Lord for that and for his mercies. Um, glad you guys joined us in-house today. If you're out there watching us online, wherever you are, um, just glad that you're here. I think the Lord's got a, um, a real message that he has laid on my heart to deliver here. I always talk about, by the way, we're in a series called blameless, a study in the life of Job. So if you're new out there catching it for the first time, you go back and listen to the archives and listen to the previous messages, kind of get caught up if you'd like. But it's one of those series, Job is, that, and, that raises more questions than it answers. Job is full of questions. It causes me every single week I leave here just thinking, how does this impact my life and what should I do differently? What should I take away from a message like that, and and really it's all about just questions. It raises questions, and then we are left to go to the Holy Spirit and take it before the Lord and just ask Him to speak into our lives how that applies. Now, I try to not only faithfully deliver the Word, but I try then to help us see how we can apply that, because again, more questions than answers, and all I get constantly is people just saying, that's a hard book to study. When you go in and you want to study it, it's hard because it's written in an ancient language. It's written in a poetic form, a lot of it. It's very old language. It just, a lot of things that make it difficult to study, and on top of that, you're often left with like, why? Why would I even want to study that because it's not super exciting and uplifting. Um, there's no cool battle scenes and all kinds of things in it. Why would I study this? So I always kind of point them back to this idea. If you're going to study, well, let's, the book of Job in particular, but anything in the Bible, if you're going to study it, you have to ask yourself a few questions. Okay, Number one, the question to ask why was this book given as scripture at all? Why is it in there? We know that God has directed the writing of this scripture. It's been canonized. It's been decided through divine guidance. These things belong in the Bible that's given to us. Why is it there? Ask that question. And then ask, what can I learn from it? What's in it? If it's just a story, what can I learn from this story or this parable or this situation or the things that are going on? What can I learn from it? And then lastly, maybe the most important one, how can I apply what I learn? So why is it there at all? What can I learn from it? How can I apply that to my life? That's what it's all about when we study the Word of God. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.16, I'll show you this on the screen. It's our first scripture for today. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Okay, how much of scripture? All of it. There's no special Greek word where all really means something else. It just means 
all of it. Now, that word reproof, though, we don't commonly use the word reproof. Anybody use the word reproof lately in their just daily conversation? Not many of us do. It's a Greek word, elenkos. And that word, the definition of it, and I'll read it so that I get it right. It says, elenkos is an inner conviction focusing on God confirming his inbirthing of faith. That's what the word reproof means. So, let me translate that all for you in just in, in my language. What it means is that Scripture should instruct you, convict you, correct you when necessary in order to help train you as you grow into the new creation and in the righteousness of Christ in you. That's what Scripture is for. It should do those things in you. And so when we're reading any Scripture, when we're studying any Scripture, we need to look at it for that purpose. What is this doing in me? Is this Scripture, am I taking away or applying something that's helping me grow into who I'm called to be? So then if you look specifically at the book of Job, Job was canonized. Canonized just means they got together and decided what belonged in Scripture and what didn't, you know, over thousands of years ago. It's because it has something to teach us. It's because it has something to teach us about who we are meant to be as a follower of Jesus. We need to look at Job through that. Now, remember, when Jesus left to ascend and go back to be with the Father, to prepare a room for us, and to wait for us, he left us with a couple instructions. A few instructions, right? But very specifically, he left us with a couple things. Number one, a commission. Anybody remember what his commission was? Go forth and make disciples, right? Go forth and make disciples. That was his commission. And along with that, he left us with a commandment. Okay, a number of commandments, but he was asked, what's the most important commandment? And he left us with this one. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Then he went on further. He said, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Meaning, if you remember nothing else of what I've taught you, remember this. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he came and he said, this is the most important thing to remember as you go forth into the world and fulfill your commission, the commission that he's giving you on this day. So as we go through this book of Job specifically, think about what you can learn from it, what you can apply to your life in obedience with these directions from Jesus. Okay, so that's how I'd like you to look at this because this can be a difficult section here, all of Job, is difficult to study, but some more than others. So as we go through this book, think about it from that viewpoint. So let's get into the scripture. Last week, just a quick recap of last week, we learned that if we are going to be the reflection of Jesus Christ in us to the world, right? if we are going to be that, especially to a world that just desperately needs him. In many ways, I look at it and I just go, more than ever, more than ever, and I know there's nothing new under the sun, but more than ever, it just seems like this world needs Jesus. But if we're going to be the reflection of Christ to this world that's in desperate need of him, love 
has to be the first thing that people see in you before they will ever hear a word from you. It has to be. Truth, facts spoken without love are not going to find their mark. They're just not going to. And we're going to see that all throughout this chapter as we see this interaction between Eliphaz and Job. Eliphaz, in fact, you know, being Job's good friend who came here just to help encourage and comfort Job, he didn't get it. He completely missed the boat on that. And you know that because the response that Job gives to this great wisdom that Eliphaz has just dispensed, it points out the fact that this, this arrow of wisdom missed its mark. And that's what we're going to talk about today. In fact, Job really, when we see Job's reply to all this wisdom that Eliphaz has dumped out, his reply just shows us that he thinks he's so far off. Eliphaz is so far off of the truth here, why would I even bother trying to correct him? So we actually don't see, like what my nature would be, is if somebody had just spent all this time accusing me of things, telling me, well, your kids must have sinned and that's why, and you must have sinned and that's why, but I know the truth is different. I would spend all kinds of time like, okay, let's go point by point here. Number one, I have sinned. How do you know? I would spend all this time refuting every single individual point that was being made. But Job doesn't do that. He knows, he's like, Eliphaz is not going to receive it anyway. He's so far off base that there's no point in going line by line. But what he does He responds very clearly to what Eliphaz is saying, and that's what we're going to go through here today. But even worse, worse yet than all that, rather than to strengthen Job, rather than to encourage Job, really all it does is cause him to waver in his resolve. He's very much resolved to follow God and to trust in God, and he always has, and he's holding on to that. But Eliphaz, the the words that he speaks to Job are not helping to encourage that process. They're causing him to waver. So let's take a look at how Job responds to all this comfort and encouragement that his good friend Eliphaz is laying on him here. First scripture, Job 6, verses 1 through 3. Then Job answered, Oh, that my grief were actually weighed and laid in the balance together with my calamity, for then it would be heavier than the sands of the seas. Therefore, my words have been rash. So what he's saying here is, look, I know, I know that I spoke rashly. I know that the way I answered that kind of gave you the end to, to start accusing me and questioning me. But look, I'm going through some real stuff here. And in fact, if you weighed everything that was coming at me, it'd be heavier than the sands of the sea. He's saying, I, I'm not making this up. This is real stuff I'm going through, real grief. And so forgive me if I lashed out a little bit. This is what he's saying. Job 6.4, for the arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. So remember, Job doesn't know anything about Satan. He doesn't know there's this this battle or this agreement going on in heaven between God and Satan, when Job looks at what's going on with him, he thinks that God's got it out for him somehow. 
and he can't figure out why. He knows his heart, at least he thinks he does. He knows what he's done. You can imagine him just replaying in his mind over and over again the last weeks, months, everything leading up to these calamities that have happened to him, just replaying like, what have I missed? Why is God so angry at me? And this is what he's saying. The arrows of the Almighty are within me. He's not saying the devil's got me in his grip. He's blaming God for this. The arrows of the Almighty are within me. They're poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God, thunder and lightning and everything that God can bring to bear on him is arrayed against Job now. This has got to be a hopeless place for him to be. And he needs, desperately, he needs more encouragement than anything else but it keeps coming his way. The obvious answer, had he asked Eliphaz, which if you've noted and been following along, he never does ask Eliphaz, what do you think about this? He's just being offered. In fact, Job never says, what can I do about it? What would you do? Never does that, but and yet they're more than happy to answer that. But if he would have asked, their obvious answer would have been, well, just quit sinning. Quit sinning and turn to God, and this will all go away. That's the obvious answer. The problem is Job knows that's not the answer because he can't see anything. He's been thinking about this. He can't come up with any reason. Job 6, verses 6 and 7 read like this. I'll just read it to you. Can something, be ta- can something tasteless be eaten without salt, or is there any taste in the white of an egg? My soul refuses to touch them. They are like loathsome food to me. Let me kind of explain what this means. It's obviously a lot of imagery. The proper translation of that, by the way, is not egg whites. That's, that's just something to help us understand of it. It really means the slime of a purslane plant, which is, which is medicine. It's a medicinal plant they used back then. Slimy, nasty, tasted horrible, but... It was a medicine that they used, and that's really what that word translates as. But the point being that the words he's getting have no flavor. They're, they're, they're hard to swallow. They have no flavor, and therefore, I'm going to reject them, which is actually, if you think about it, a really, really insightful way for Job to respond here. Because if we're desperate for information, we're desperate for a way out, We're listening intently for anything that's going to help us get out of this predicament that we're in. We're in pain, and we're grasping for things. And all this information is being thrown his way, and he's still discerning enough to say, "Uh, no, that doesn't taste right to me. I'm not going to take it in. That would be hard. I don't know how many of us could do that in that situation because you're just wanting to grab onto something. And he's got plenty to grab onto, but nothing that he wants to take in. So now he goes further, and Job starts wishing again that God would just kill him. Just kill me now. And the reason is different than you might think. The reason's not because he's saying, hey, I just, I just want to disappear, and I want my pain to be over. It's a much different reason. Job 6.10 says, it is still my consolation and I rejoice in unsparing pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Job is saying, look, even in the midst of all this, I can take consolation that in the midst of all this horrible pain, I have not denied the words of God. But he knows he's getting weak. 
He knows he's starting to waver a little bit. And he's saying, if only God would take me now, then I've finished well. I finished before I slipped and did something wrong. This is why he's asking for that. Then he goes on. Next one, Job 6.14. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend. That's wisdom right there. So that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. This statement right here, so let's read it again. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. Remember that phrase because that's probably, of all the things that Job says, is probably the most insightful thing that he says. We're going to go back and visit that again in a few minutes. But instead of being a good friend, Eliphaz has been self-serving and really unkind. Remember some of the things that Eliphaz said to him last weekend. There's some cold-blooded stuff that Eliphaz said to Job about him and about his children. Assumptions, all kinds of things that were way off base. And all of that was self-serving from Eliphaz's standpoint because he needed to prove a point. He had to prove a point. And all of his words are not really even designed to make Job feel any better. It's designed to make Eliphaz feel better. And the fruit is absolutely there. Let me read this section to you. Job 6, 15 to 18. My brothers have acted deceitfully like a wadi, like the torrents of wadis which, which vanish, which are turbid because of ice and into which the snow melts. When they become waterless, they are silent. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. Their pa- the paths of their course wind along. They go up into nothing and perish. Now, Anybody know what a wadi is? The illustration that Job is using here is because if you think about where he was, what his life was, what his profession was before that, he lived at a kind of a crossroads for some trading routes, and he provided camels and transportation things for these trading routes, right? Like his old school trucking business that he had. But he was very familiar with the dangers of traveling through the desert, whether it was roaming nomads or, or in this case, flash floods that would hit suddenly from out of nowhere. A wadi is basically just a dry creek bed. And it can either be totally dry where it just looks like there hasn't been water here in a thousand years and you might be tempted to pitch your tent there because it's always nice and level. Or maybe there'd be a little bit of water running through it and you'd think, how, how lucky am I that in the midst of this desert, I finally found a little trickle of water. The problem is a wadi can go from safety, comforting, and maybe nourishing with some water to deadly in a minute. Let me show you this video really quick. This is what a wadi looks like. This is in the Middle East. It's in Oman. Dry ground to start with. This is a result of 20 minutes of rain that happened miles away. And it went from dry to this. That's how quickly something that is 
comforting, potentially, and meant as either a place of safety or I thought I was going to die of thirst, but here's this creek. It can go suddenly to deadly. And so this is the idea that Job is using, the imagery that he's using about his words from Eliphaz. Eliphaz came supposedly to comfort, and the idea would be, I'm going to latch on to your words of comfort, and they're going to help me. They're going to help me through this time. But Job is saying, no, rather than, rather than them to be comforting, they just came on deadly and treacherous like a flash flood. And if he's not careful in how he drinks or if he drinks these words in, it's going to kill him. He's calling Eliphaz a fair-weather friend. I was looking for comfort, but you're trying to drown me in this treachery. That's the imagery he's talking about. And then he goes on even further. He's like, look, I didn't ask you for anything but friendship. That's really all I wanted from you. Again, we go back and we can search through, and he never, Job never really asks any of these guys for their opinion. He's like, all I wanted was your friendship, and you're unloading all this stuff on me. Job 6, 22, 23. Job says, have I said, give me something, or offer a bribe for me from your wealth, or deliver me from the hand of the adversary, or redeem me from the hand of the tyrants? saying, I'm not asking you for anything. Trust me, I'm not about to ask you for anything, so you can just relax on that. I don't need anything from you. I just wanted your sympathy and your comfort. That's all I wanted. So this brings to my mind a question I start thinking about. Have you ever, have I ever, purposely steered clear of somebody that you know needs help? Now, how that plays out in my life is I see the phone ring, and I see caller ID come across, and I go, ooh, they're moving this weekend. I know what they want from me. So I'm going to let that go to voicemail. Because I know that they need help, and if I offer to help, I don't know what I'm getting into. Am I going to go over there and just like, hey, we just need help carrying this cabinet up, and we're done? Or am I going to go over there and find out, okay, we need you to... Help us with the entire thing when you haven't even started yet. You don't know what you're getting into. And so a lot of times, we'd rather just avoid putting ourselves in that position to be asked. What about a homeless person? I'd roll down my window at the stoplight and talk to this homeless person, but I don't know what they're going to ask of me. I'm assuming they're going to want money, but what am I getting myself into? Is it going to be a bigger conversation? This is just human nature. We kind of tend to do this sometime, but the problem is if you offer to help, you don't know what you're going to be asked, but you haven't taken the time to ask what help they need. And that's kind of what Eliphaz is doing here. He's offering all this help, but he doesn't even know what Job needs. Do you need encouragement? Do you need some practical ways out? Do you just need me to go to the drugstore and get you some medicine? They didn't have a drugstore then, but if without asking, you don't even know what the need is. But Job's saying, I haven't asked you for anything, so relax. Job 6, 24 to 26, he gets a little sarcastic here. He's like, teach me, and I'll be silent, and show me how I have erred. How painful are honest words, but what does your argument prove? Do you intend to reprove my words when the words of one in despair belong to the wind? So he's going like, Teach me, O powerful Oz, 
what have I done wrong and what should I change? He's being really sarcastic here. Where have I gone wrong? He's really just calling, he's calling Eliphaz a fair-weather friend. And then ultimately, have you even bothered to ask me what I need? Or did you just assume? I do that. I see somebody and I just make an assumption on what I think they need. And if I can offer that, great. But if I can't offer what they need, I won't even bother asking. That's just convicting for me. Take the time to ask what they need and don't make assumptions. We see that kind of fruit here. Job, Job's had it, and he's starting to like bark at them. He challenges their position of, of self-imposed righteousness to even judge them. Job 6, 27 and 28. You would even cast lots for the orphans and barter over your friend. Now please look at me and see if I lie to your face. So he's saying you would, you would use orphans and gamble with them. That's how bad you are. You would see me and make bargains and gamble between each other, make bets. Is he going to handle it? It's pretty cold stuff for Job to say back towards his friends, but this is what he's seeing based on what they're telling him. So I've been your friend. Why are you treating me like this? Side note, if anybody ever says, I've been your friend, why are you treating me like this? We're probably doing something wrong. We need to look a little bit more closely at what we're doing. So that, that scripture there, that's actually the last one of this section here of how he's responding back to Eliphaz. Next week, we see Job continue, but rather than to talk to Eliphaz, he's kind of, I'm, I'm done with you, and he turns to God. That's what we'll see next week. But the question then at this point is, what can we take away? What can we take away from a message like this? We kind of see what's happening, and we can see kind of maybe bits and pieces of some things that we might do in what's going on here. But what's our takeaway? Let's, let's recap and kind of see where this leads us. First of all, Job was in a place of great pain, not perceived pain, not something he's overblowing. He's really in some serious pain here, and he cries out to God. We see that. Next, his friends come to comfort him, okay? Ideally, just to comfort and encourage him. That's what Scripture says they came for. We take them at that word. But they could not resist offering their take on his condition. They just couldn't resist. It's kind of human nature again. And as a result of that, his resolve, Job's resolve, tends to start to waver a little bit. Starting to be not quite as sure of himself and sure of God as he was before. And then instead of encouraging Job, Eliphaz's speech here is all based on assumptions and it makes matters worse. It doesn't resonate with Job's spirit and it just starts to make things worse rather than better. And the reason is because his words, Eliphaz's words, were based on pride and a personal agenda. Eliphaz wasn't there just to comfort and encourage his friend. Maybe that's what he came for, but it very quickly turned into, I have to prove a point because if I can't, then it points back at me. I've got to prove something. In other words, he had an agenda for how and why he was saying what he said. And we know that this is wrong because it causes Job to lash out, not only at his friends, but at God, as we'll see next week. This, by the way is the first sin that Eliphaz is guilty of. 
that can be tough because you look at the words that Eliphaz spoke, and if you just read them in isolation, they're not necessarily wrong, okay, or not necessarily untrue. Let me say that. They're, they're factual. It's, it's not bad. I've had people pull out pieces, verses from what Eliphaz said and go, okay, see, this is what God does, and it makes sense but it's not delivered in love and it's not delivered with an understanding of the context. So the question there is, even if we even are speaking truth, can we be held accountable if our words cause someone to fall further away from God rather than closer? Can we be held accountable even if what we speak is correct if the fruit of that is it causes someone to struggle with God. Can we be held accountable? We need to ask ourselves that question. Remember that scripture, Job 6, 14, from earlier. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friends so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. In other words, if there's unkindness from your friend, it might cause you to forsake the fear of the Almighty. That's just understanding God's words and trusting in Him. So yes, even though Eliphaz spoke words that might have been truth in a different context, different situation, God directly charges him with sin for what he says and the reason he says it. Again, he's not blaspheming God. It's just not true in context. And so, spoiler alert, I'm going to show you a scripture from the very end of this book, Job 42, 7. This is God charging Eliphaz. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So even though in isolation it might have been correct, it wasn't correct in what he spoke to Job. So Eliphaz sinned with his words against Job and to Job. And the fruit is seen really obviously in Job's response. In fact, I think we can all kind of take that away as a lesson from this, at least on one level. The response that we get to the words we speak ought to be a barometer of how we're delivering those words. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean you're going to deliver truth to somebody and they're immediately going to say, that is the best, most comforting thing I've ever heard in my life. Sometimes, as Job said earlier, truth can be painful. Truth can be extremely painful. But truth spoken in love will create conviction, not condemnation, and not guilt definitely doesn't have anything to do with whether the words are easy or not, whether they feel good or not, but they will create conviction and not condemnation. That's the problem here. The words that Eliphaz is speaking are creating condemnation in Job, and it's causing Job's spirit to rise up and fight those words. That's the problem. Now, it's still It's still up to the receiver. It's still up to Job in this case to make a choice based on what he hears. And we see that he's actually clearly made that choice. He's like, your words, I'm not taking them in. They don't taste right. Tastes kind of nasty in my mouth. I'm not taking them in. But 
that choice, that free will choice that we all get to make can be made more difficult if the delivery of truth from those well-meaning people around us starts us down that wrong path. We see where Eliphaz is talking to Job, and again, it's not untrue, but he's given Job all this ammunition to become really angry. And that's what rises up out of Job. Job is angry, and Job is kind of spitting back at him. And so that fruit right there, it has started Job out on the wrong path. And rather than strengthen Job, they have given Satan material to work with. That's what we need to watch out for. The words we speak, tweet, message, post, text, however we do it, are not just harmless opinions. They matter to God because of the effect they can have on the ones that God loves. And that's you. Too many people today want to take this secular, political, activist part of their life and separate it from who they are as a Christian. I've had people tell me to my face, oh, that post, I know, that was just a political post. It had nothing to do with the church or, or who I am. That's wrong. Guys, we cannot be in that place where this is this part of my life and there's this part of my life. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, every part of your life should be a reflection of him. We cannot say, I'm going to speak this mean, hateful stuff over here, but that's okay because that's political. Some people even have a whole separate social media account for those things they don't want their church friends to see. I don't know who those people are, so I'm not pointing or looking at anybody. You know who you are, though. Let that convict you. We are all to be followers of Jesus Christ and a reflection of him at all times, even if we choose to engage in the political and social realms of this world. We still need to be the reflection of Christ. It matters. Matthew 12, 36, 37 says this, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Let your words be truth, and let your words be truth spoken in love. So before you speak, post, write, anything, ask yourself these three questions. Will my words hurt or heal? Will my words encourage or condemn? And probably the most important of these, will my words provide fuel for the Holy Spirit to work or ammunition for the devil to use against us? Because that's the clear choice in most of what we say. Ephesians 4.29 goes on to say, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Church, you say, and I've said, I don't like what's going on in the world today. I don't like what I see in our government, our local government, our, the world, national government. I don't like what I see going on around me. And if you're in that place, this is how us as the body of Christ can change it. This is how we change it. Colossians 3.16. I have that one on the screen too. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, 
with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When it says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, that's the commandments, that's the commission, the things that Christ teaches. Take those to heart and let them live in you. And if they are truly living in you, the fruit of that should be encouragement and love shown to those around. The truth can hurt sometimes, but delivered in love, it's different. That's what we need to be aware of. So let's pray. Father God, I personally repent of those things that I have spoken out of my flesh rather than out of love. Spoken out of my flesh and my agenda to try and prove my point to what feels good rather than what you have called me to do. And that is to speak the truth in love. So Father, I repent of any of those things that I have done. And Lord, I just ask that you just show me. Show me love for those people around you. Let me see the people around me how you see them. Let me have love, not just for those people that I agree with, but for those people that I absolutely don't agree with. Let me speak words. Let me write and post and be a reflection of who you are in the world and not who I am. Because my righteousness does not approach yours. It's only your righteousness through me. And let me reflect that without being a part of the problem. Father, we praise you. We love you in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Next week, as I said, we're going to see the fruit of Eliphaz's words here as Job directly reaches out and attacks God. Let's take communion now. If you're at home, go grab your supplies. It's not critical what they are, whatever you have. If you're here in-house, we have the single service in the back there. We look at what Job went through, the trials, the pain, everything that Job went through, the brokenness that he endured. That's all reflected in what Christ did. Job went through that in part on behalf of his children. But Jesus Christ went through that on your behalf. He willfully submitted his body to be broken, to take what we deserved onto himself so that we can look at stories like Job and just say that doesn't have to happen today because of what Christ did for us. And if you accept that, take the body. The blood of Christ, last service when we were doing communion, The Holy Spirit reminded me of the very first time, the only time I've watched it all the way through, by the way, The Passion of the Christ. Such a graphic and brutal movie. To be honest, when I watched it the first time, I said, I will never watch that again because it hurt. It made me sick to my stomach to watch the graphic pain and the bloodshed that that Christ submitted himself to. But I think too many of us Christians, and again, just looking at myself, we know in our mind what happened, 
but partaking in that. His blood was shed to reconcile us to the Father, but if that's where it stops, then it was for nothing. When we take that blood, let it wash over us and make us clean in the eyes of the Father and live that life worthy of his sacrifice from that day forward, that's when his sacrifice meant something for you. And if you accept that, take the blood. Father God, we just thank you for your grace and your mercy that's new every day. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we have um, the crosses if you need prayer, if you want to pin a prayer request to the cross. I'll be in the back. If you need prayer, I'll be happy to pray with you, our testimony board. If you're out there, you can respond back online in the chat boards if you have a prayer request or maybe a a testimony, a praise report of something God has done. Leave it there, and we'll bring that before our prayer team and before our pastors, and we'll pray over that and just encourage one another in what the Lord has done. Amen. Thank you, guys.